Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show with a new co-host this week for one week only. It's Ewan Larkin, who's a reporter on PR Week, and it's the first time I've done a podcast with Ewan. So, Ewan, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm well, Steve. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, excited to have you here. Frank's taking a break for a week, and we've got a great guest. We've got Norval Scott, who's the head of global comms and PR at Tractable, calling in from the UK. How are you doing, Norval? I'm all right, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you on the show. And crazy coincidences with our backgrounds, because you're calling in from Dover, which is 10 miles from where I was brought up in Folkestone. And um, I think you're going to be training the local hockey team. So um, good luck with that. But um, yeah, got lots of uh, things in common back there. And you used to be a journalist as well. So interested to chat to you. And uh, we'll chat to Norval. We'll also cover Omnicom PR, their uh, Omnicom has put their Q2 results out and good performance by the PR firms. And one of the PR firms, Ketchum, has hired a, an interesting um, hire there, Jim Joseph. He's coming back to the PR. We'll chat about that. We'll talk about Dextra, the IPG, um, part of the IPG that holds the PR firms, and they've, uh, they've uh, changed their structure. We'll talk about Minions, reminding consumers about Tupperware. Uh, we'll talk about Saudi Arabia working with Edelman to help transform its global perception. The Oscars of the PR industry are launching for entries. So we'll talk about those. And we've got a great chair of jury. And Nancy Elder, she's moved from DAZN to the Mets, the New York Mets. Uh, interesting move there. So we'll chat about that. But let's start with you, Norval. First of all, for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about Tractable and uh, where you fit into the tech ecosystem and um, how you, uh, you you started the job in COVID. So that was a, uh, an interesting challenge, I would imagine, coming on board uh, in June 2019. It was just before COVID. So we had six months of uh, basically normal operating uh, behavior before COVID really hit and then uh, everything kicked off. But for those of you who don't know Tractable, and I appreciate that will be probably most people listening to this. So Tractable is an AI company. Uh, we are with one of the unicorns that people talk about valued at a billion dollars. Uh, and what we do is we use um, AI to visually assess cars and homes. Um, so in about nine years ago, there were accelerations in the way that computers can understand what's in an image, like through computer vision. Um, so that is, if you show a computer a picture of a cat, can it actually understand what is a cat? Um, and most of the time, you know, previously a computer wouldn't be able to do this because its processing capacity wasn't, wasn't quick enough and because it didn't have you know, enough context to actually work that out. Um, but we got to a point where you could actually do that. So the founders of the company went, okay, what can we actually apply this to? Uh, in terms of the use case, because this technology is going to change the world. And they landed on basically um, cars uh, in the first use case, uh, because cars get damaged all the time, uh, and there are millions of them. And the first thing an insurer does uh, when there is an accident is take photos so that they can get them repaired. So you have this kind of like, you have this massive amount of data um, that you need to train an AI. You have uh, a thing to apply the AI to, which is can you accelerate an insurance claim? Uh, and that is essentially what Tractable does. We use the AI to make insurance claims more efficient and faster uh, for the world's largest uh, companies. 
Um, that's really where the company started. Um, we've now moved on to also doing that with property as well. So we've moved on to, uh, we're applying that to um, property damage in Japan, where uh, Typhoon Minjul last year actually hit the the island. And um, we were able to accelerate claims that would have maybe taken weeks or even months. Uh, and you can resolve those in a couple of minutes with AI. Yeah, so that's interesting. It's a, a, a very practical use of AI and a real usage because there's a lot of chat about AI, isn't there? And it's good to talk about things that are really happening. What are the challenges of that? I, speeding up that process, I'm sure everybody's in favour of that, especially the people who are claiming and want to get their <laughs> want to get their their money back. But then you've presumably got some issues around getting over the the, the image of of AI and actually having a real person there, people maybe feel more comfortable with that. So in terms of reputational issues and, and what were the biggest challenges in getting people to buy into it and, and believe in it, if you like, in rather than having a physical person go around? Or is there still, and, how, and what's the human element still involved? Yes, yeah, so there can still be a human in the loop, and there often is. Um, but I think the you've put your finger straight on the main issue, really, which is that the main problem we have in terms of selling this technology to the world is people kind of hear that and they say, that sounds nice. I look forward to seeing that in operation in five years' time when it's ready. And, you know, I think that you get that reaction from, you know, the layman in the street to my mum to, you know, people working at the very top level of the world's biggest insurance companies. They don't necessarily realise that actually this technology is being used already on millions of claims today and it's accelerating them already Um, because it's all the back end, right? You don't really necessarily see this, there are some circumstances where you would actually put, put the technology in the hands of a customer and they would actually take photos of the damage and get the claim back to them straight away. But for the most part, the big PR challenge is getting across, yes, this technology is ready to make a difference now. Uh, yes, it can save you money. Yes, it can save you time. Uh, yes, it can make you more efficient. Yes, it can provide a bigger, a better uh, customer experience. Um, and that's really difficult to prove uh, because you know a lot of people hear the words AI and it just sounds like a magic wand, and kind of you have to do you really have to show that the AI can perform at the same level as, for example, a human assessor that you would send to to look at the external damage of the car and say, okay, yes, they are coming up with the same results because we've programmed it to do so. Yeah, and you've got to get that story across, and we'll we'll chat about that a, a bit, both from your former journalist hat and, and your sort of repping a tech, high-tech company. But tell us about the founders. A lot of these stories uh, often revolve around the founders of the technology, don't they? So what's the, the, the story behind Tractable's founders? Yeah, so, um, so the founder, Alex, well, the founders, uh, Alex and Raz, they met at Entrepreneur First, which uh, is an accelerated program in uh, London. Uh, and what it is, it doesn't actually join people with, yeah, that already have an idea for a company. It joins people that have common interests and then kind of like points them towards something and to see if they can find a problem. So you're kind of looking for a problem that you can solve almost uh, and like being match made with, you know, somebody who could help you solve it. Um, so Alex and Raz met there. Alex was a, both of them were computer vision uh, students, basically. So they'd just finished university, uh, hadn't worked, I think, um, like properly, um, until that point. So they were 24, I think, when they founded the company. Um, when, did, so when did they found it, Norval? 2014. Um, so yeah. So Alex has just passed 30, I think, and the company obviously has grown to to the billion dollars. Um, 
And so they then you know, created the company. They looked at different problems to solve. So they looked at medical imaging, which obviously Google is doing now. Uh, they looked at um, welds on a house and like how pipes fit together, and eventually landed on cars as the uh, as the the thing that they would look to to really accelerate with. I mean, the funny thing about Alex really, he's he isn't really interested in cars at all. He doesn't drive. Um, it's more the, the the thing that drives him is the application of this technology, which he was fortunate enough to be at the the early stage of developing and realize the potential. Like, how can I actually take that? and apply it to a commercial problem in a way that actually makes a difference and like brings AI to the world in a positive way. And where's, uh, you talk about the billion-dollar company, where's most of the revenue or operations, or how does it split around the world? So the weird thing about Tractable is we're super international. Um, we have three of the biggest, three of the top 20 U.S. Uh, insurance companies uh, use Tractable. So the U.S. is probably, I think, our biggest market at the moment. But we also have a really big Japanese uh, contingent, which is very unusual for a U.K. Uh, tech company. Um, so we have 40 people working in Tokyo. Uh, the top four uh, Japanese insurers all use us, uh, all use our technology. Um, and there are lots of, you know, Everyone said you were mad to go to try and develop uh, in Tokyo, but there are some very real reasons why the uh, the Japanese market was interested in using this technology. One of them being that um, a lot of the images they submit for insurance claims are still done by fax. So any way of kind of accelerating that process is you know, greatly welcomed and you know, yeah, sure. uh, yeah, obvious. Um, and then uh, across most of the, uh, we have customers in most of the uh, big markets in Europe as well. Um, so we're operating in about 14 countries with about 35 um, big corporates all using our technology today. And are you, you you can work with with different insurance companies. It's not that sort of thing where there's an ex- exclusivity arrangement. Your technology is able to be used by anyone. Yes, absolutely. Um, the challenge tends to be that um, the way insurance companies work is. It's, it's a back office problem that they have a lot of different bits plugged in in a very complex way. And if you unplug one bit and plug something new in, then other bits fall off. Um, and so the challenge is almost, you know, rather than as well as having the challenge of, you know, this technology is trustworthy and it can improve what you do. It's also a workflow problem. Like, can we actually integrate this in a way that yeah. you you can actually use it properly to do your job? Yeah. And I guess there's different layers of the comms task there. You've got the B2B layer where it's, it's helping raise awareness and, and sales and marketing with potential customers. Then you've got, I guess you do want to raise the concept of AI, um, you know, dealing with claims, which is more of a consumer awareness job. And then I guess there's the financial community, right, and analysts. So is, it, is that fair or is, is that a fair summation? And there's an extra point. I mean, there's, there's a really, really important part there that you haven't mentioned, which is that um, we need to recruit some of the brightest right. machine learning people in the world, right? So we're up against yeah. DeepMind and Google and Amazon and uh, Tencent and people like that um, in terms of you really do need to go to the best universities, get the creme de la creme. Um, and you don't get to recruit those people if they think that you're a boring company that does something with insurance. You know, so we do have to absolutely position ourselves to all these different sort, different audiences very carefully. So, in terms of you know, to the to the outside world as a whole, we're really you know, we're one of the leading AI companies that's applying this technology in a way that solves the global problem and making things better for people. 
um, to insurance companies, you know, we make you more efficient, we help you get a better customer experience. And that's really, really nuanced, right? Because you're just moving between those different worlds all the time. So it has turned my uh, my mind inside out a couple of times when I've been uh, <laughs> with that. But yeah, mostly we get it right, I think. Yeah, and uh, that's a part of the employee, employee engagement play as well, isn't it? So that people you want to get the best talent and the best advocates for that are often your own employees and engineers, I guess. So, um, yes, that's fascinating stuff, actually. And um, But you've got a great perspective on the, the, the whole high-tech area, being a former journalist and working in these spaces. Where, where do you think the media environment is at? Because obviously all media sectors are, I've been under pressure and we've seen journalists, you know, move into PR and move out of the industry. There are fewer specialist journalists covering specialist areas. There's even fewer tech. Well, it, it, it's, there's a double-edged thing happening in, in that you've got fewer, especially on the West Coast, Silicon Valley, there seems to be fewer specialists, but then there are new types of media operation growing up like the information. So how do, what do you, what's your take on that, both from a PR pro and as a, as a former journalist? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think for the, if I look at the UK specifically, just for a second, in terms of like UK tech coverage, I mean, there's the difference between UK and the US tech coverage is, is quite, quite large, really. Um, in the UK, you now have, I mean, I, I started working in uh, the UK tech sector about 10 years ago. And um, back then, it was a very immature uh, market, right? Um, the first tech company I worked for was a company called Judil. They raised, I think, about twenty-two million or something like that in one of the series in one of their funding rounds, and they were a big dog. But that made them a serious UK player, and everybody knew who they were. Um, mm. And now, if they released that kind, if they did that kind of funding round, you know, there would be no attention on them whatsoever, um, because you know now that is just you'd see that every single day almost coming out of the Euro- European tech ecosystem. Um, so there's so much more economic development that's being fueled by tech in Europe now. And I think it's fair to say that the media landscape has not kept up with that. Right? If you look at, especially the broadsheets, you know, the amount of business coverage in there is you know, pretty limited. The amount of tech coverage there is you know, more limited still. And then it's very, very focused on B2C. So you know, Monzo and Revolut and um, you know, the banking companies and like, apps you know, will get the majority of what coverage there is. But that means there are really, really big co- companies, you know, such as Tractable, um, I can name many, many others in the UK um, that don't really get that. They don't get, it's not they don't get covered at all, but it's that you really have to fight for coverage. Um, and I think that's where, for me, having the journalistic background really kicks in because at least I do understand what makes a story and what might make a story to a journalist. Um, whereas I think people are just coming out from a PR side um, thinking that, you know, our company's really interesting and like people automatically cover what we're doing. Uh, I think they get a pretty rude awakening these days because I don't think, you know, even if you get a big funding round, it doesn't necessarily get covered in TechCrunch or the other specialist press these days. Yeah. And do, do you, some of the new sort of Substack writers or the information or some, some, some quite really smart um, USB to B products pinging up, do they cover the UK much? Do they, you know, is that a, is that a big concentration for them or do you think there's a lot, do you think there's a bit of potential there? There may be. Um, 
I, I do love the information. I think they do have a, they have a UK reporter. And actually, um, I used to work with their Asian editor, a guy called Shai, who, uh, when we were both journalists together, he won a Pulitzer, and I very much did not. Um, and so, <laughs> I, <laughs> so I still keep in contact with them. Um, and I think what those guys are doing uh, uh, is amazing. But I think in terms of, I mean, in the UK, uh, there is a there's a new publication called Sifted, which has spun out the, of the FT, um, and they're really making a play for can we cover um, you know, the European tech sector in a way that nobody else does. Um, and I think that's great to have that kind of, you know, people are you know, putting their eye on the prize and going for it. Equally, I think it also reveals some of the, like some of the frictions in the, in the market at the moment, because if you look at the journalists there, I'm not sure that anybody has, you know, experienced more than like five or six years um, and a lot of what they're doing is it's, it's very magazine-y. So they're going after the feature kind of articles and also maybe copying TechCrunch and in the funding rounds. But I think there's a lot of other areas in tech that you know should be covered in terms of what is this technology actually, what is what is the technology that's being discovered? Um, what impact are they actually making on the world? Does actually anybody care about the stuff? Is it important? I think that's the bit that's really, really missing in terms of how tech is being covered in Europe. In the US, we've actually we've bridged that gap a bit. It's been a little bit easier because we've been able to kind of pick up attention from some really, really big publications. We've been covering the Wall Street Journal twice. Uh, we had a really big feature in the New York Times. Uh, we've been covered in Wired. Uh, and those pieces actually really drove not just interest, but also um, like actual business for the company and led to new customers um, picking up uh you know, tractable services. Um, and that hasn't really quite happened in the UK. And there's this real dis- you know, disparity between how the, you know, just the, just the uh, maturity, I think, of the different ecosystems. Yeah, yeah. But there's some interesting deals going on. We just had uh, Industry Dive over here was bought by Informa uh, for $525 million. That was announced yesterday. And then you've seen Axel Springer, which is actually a European media owner, buying Insider and Politico. So, I wonder whether there's uh, potential for someone like Axel Springer to do something more, or, or even the Axios model. You know whether there's there's scope for that to move into foreign markets as well with that interesting take. You know that smart brevity take on it. Just finally, tell us about moving from you know being a journalist to the PR side. Um, a lot of people do that these days. What's the biggest challenge? I mean, you were at Dow Jones, you were at the Globe and Mail, so working for big media organizations what was the biggest change in 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 mindset that you had to uh, deal with that it's really embarrassing steve i'm not sure i want to say but i mean (laughs) i will (laughs) i mean so when i was when i was at the globe uh in so the globe mail in in, uh, canada so i I was reporting on the oil sands um and yes big big business um i was 28 i guess 29 um and you know you did have access to you know, billionaires on the end of your phone. And if you were out, they would come and talk to you. Um, and, yeah. you know, so there was a bit of an ego thing. And then, so I moved from there. Um, so I actually moved, and, I went back to university. I went back to my old university. I worked in the PR department at the University of Edinburgh while also doing uh, my master's. Um, and it was just a real, real uh, difference in that, you know, previously, you know, you'd have genuinely be the CEO of, you know, multi-billion dollar companies would cross the room to talk to you to you're getting, you know, really something ripped, you know, ripped apart by quite minor academics um, <laughs> for making a spelling mistake or something like that. And, you know, the whole, 
you know, don't you know who I am kind of thing. But like, it was like, well, you're not that person anymore. And so having to get my head around that was the first big change. Um, and then I think the second big change was I realized that when I was a journalist, I didn't really understand what PR people did. I just kind of thought that their job was to funnel stories to me. Um, and I kind of, you know, when that didn't happen, I just assumed they were a bit incompetent. And having now been you know, behind the scenes and you know, actually understanding that there's so much more to it than that, that, you know, I haven't just written the press release. I've undergone, you know, a very, very, you know, almost certainly a very, very difficult political situation to get all this messaging out exactly right in a way that pleases the 78 different parties that are involved. And then you're taking that to the world and selling it to, you know, many, many journalists, many of whom it won't be quite right for, but you've still got to try. It's like you don't see any of that. And I think that's the the real difference. I would love to. My final thought in terms of talking about me, which is always a bit weird, but the one thing that really annoys me about you know, the world in which we live as PR and uh, journalist people is you always see in every kind of media thing, you know, like here's our, our guide to pitching to the press put on by four journalists, and then they all complain about how bad PR people are. And I'm always just like, you don't know anything about pitching to the press. You know, you know, you, you know what you would want in a perfect world, but you don't know anything about how it should be done or what actually works. And I would just love there to be like a, a version of that where it's PR people saying, this is why we do what we do. And this is how it lands. And this is why you um, make the follow up call and so on and so forth. So I would love to do that one day. <laughs> yeah, I think you make a massively good point. I think, in fact, I think PR needs its own PR campaign, because when you see PR covered in the Times, I've talked about this before, in the Times, the Journal, you know, even the Globe and Mail. It does come through that lens of the reporter who just sees PRs as a bit of an annoyance, you know, and someone who's spamming up their inbox or whatever, when actually there's so much more to, to PR than that. And it's a senior level job where you're in the room with the CEO, with the C-suite, you're coming up with strategic um, uh, counsel the employee engagement thing you talked about, purposeful business, and there's so much more to it. So, yeah, I think you make a really good point. And, um, yeah, it's like when I first came to edit PR Week, all my friends were like, what, what are you doing? Why are you going to write about PR? You know, I used to write, I used to edit Media Week or Revolution, which covered tech or or what have you. So you make a really good point. And, uh, yeah, I think we need, to do, we need to do more of that. So, yeah, good point. Um, let's move to Ewan and talk about the big stories of the week. Ewan, you covered Omnicom's Q2 results, and uh, they were pretty good, actually, weren't they? Uh, you know, we've, we've obviously got economic headwinds, and, and last year was terrific for the PR firms, but they produced really good growth on top of a really stellar year. Yeah, they did, absolutely. Uh, Omnicom's, uh, Omnicom Group's PR agencies posted a 15.8% organic revenue increase um, to $392 million in Q2. Uh, those PR firms obviously include Fleischmann Hillard, Ketchum, uh, Mercury, Porter Novelli, Cone, and more. Uh, but a strong performance from the agencies. But what's very interesting, um, taking a look, as you mentioned, I covered the earnings when they released yesterday afternoon, was what's very interesting is that PR outpaced advertising, which grew uh, 8.2%, and it outpaced healthcare as well, which jumped 9.2%. So that was particularly interesting to take a look at when I was scanning through the filings. It was, because healthcare had driven a lot of growth. And when our agency report saw a 20% increase across the board in 2021. 
um, across the whole agency sector. And a lot of that was driven by healthcare. Not all of it. You know, there's a lot of other senior level stuff. But good to see the growth continuing, but in a, in a, a harsher economic climate, which just goes to show that people need smart PR counsel uh, in good times and bad. So very good um, results for Omnicom. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about IPG in a minute. Their results are coming out, but they'll be after this podcast is recorded. And to your point about health, Jim Joseph has just been hired by Ketchum in a very senior role, and he's come from IPG Health to come back to his roots in PR. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this morning, Ketchum named Jim Joseph, who uh, we know is also a former BCW Global President, as their new Global Chief uh, marketing and Integration Officer, which is a newly created position um, in which he'll be leading global marketing and communications, uh, but it'll also be working across Omnicom PR Group, as we just mentioned, um, and the holding company as a whole to support clients. Um, an interesting role, as you mentioned, he's back in the world of PR after most recently being at IPG Health, um, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out moving forward. It will, and it's good to see Jim back doing full-time PR. I'm sure he was doing some PR stuff and earned media stuff at IPG, but this is a full-time PR role. Good to see him back. And that comes on the back of Ketchum saying goodbye to their president, Neera Chowdhury, uh, the other week. So um, a senior hire there, not 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 sort of taking on that uh, that part of the operation, but obviously will be involved with uh, CEO Mike Doyle and the rest of the leadership team there. And moving over to IPG, as I said, we're expecting their results Thursday. But uh, Dextra, which is the unit there that holds the PR companies has got new leadership because Andy Polanski, who was looking after it, has retired. So talk, talk us through that, Ewan. Yeah, more interesting holding companies here, as you mentioned. Um, IPG is not planning to replace Andy Polanski as CEO of the IPG Dextra Network um, after he retired last month. The leadership of uh, Dextra's staple brands, which you know includes PR agencies like Weber Shanwick, Golan, uh, DeVries, Current Globum, they will report directly to IPG uh, CEO Philip Krakowski. Um, so an interesting, uh, interesting decision there, and it seems like it'll take more communication across these major agencies' leaderships uh, to keep things moving uh, smoothly going forward. That is interesting that they're not replacing Andy, I must admit, and that is the, the, those functions are reporting directly into the CEO, which is uh, uh, not you know, slightly unusual that he would take direct management. I think he's been involved before in managing that part of the operation, but uh, Dextra has one business as a unit. There's, it's, it's sort of um, involves the PR firms, but also some experiential and sports marketing. So they decide to keep the structure, but it's going to report into the uh, holding company CEO now. And uh, certainly for the time being anyway, we'll see whether that changes as we move forward. But that means that the PR company CEOs, as Dale Hyman and uh, Matt Neal at Golin, uh, will report into Krakowski. So interesting stuff. Let's get on to the big news of the week, Ewan, which is all about minions and reminding us of Tupperware, which you're far too young to remember what Tupperware is. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that the case? <laughs> no, we've still got a bunch of Tupperware around in my house. But yeah, as you mentioned, it seems like minions are just absolutely everywhere at the moment. But one place we probably didn't anticipate them showing up is in partnership with Tupperware. Uh, there's a scene in the new movie where the minions are having a Tupperware party, um, which were apparently particular popular in the 1970s. So Universal Pictures have reached out to the brand to work together. Um, and for Tupperware, the appearance in the movie is reminding customers that the product is still alive and relevant. Um, they're releasing a limited edition Minions Tupperware collection um, and promoting the campaign on social media platforms as well as through U.S.-based influencers and employees. Um, and Edelman is supporting Tupperware with PR on the campaign. 
Yeah, I can confirm you. And as a child of the 70s, that Tupperware parties were indeed a thing. My mum used to have them, get all her friends round. And then it seems to be an excuse to drink, um, well, brandy and baby sham if we if we are going all 70s on you. On, and then, uh, then, funnily enough, they'd all buy some Tupperware at the end of the night. So I don't know whether that was a... Uh, I'm not going to call it pyramid selling. That would be, that would probably get me sued. But uh, Norvell, in your Dover roots, were Tupperware parties a thing in in that uh, in that part of Kent as well? I think they would have been, but I don't think my parents had enough friends. <laughs> <laughs> my mum and dad seemed to get involved in all those things, like water filters, um, jewellery, uh, but Tupperware was definitely a thing. And uh, it's good to see it coming back. The 70s and 80s are back with a vengeance. So, uh, yeah, and courtesy of the minions. Um, see, we cover all sorts of elements of the PR spectrum here. So we'll go on to a slightly more serious subject now, which is Saudi Arabia, which has uh, chosen Edelman to help try and transform its global perception. And uh, interesting topic, Ewan, because obviously... President Biden's just made a trip out there and had that sort of slightly awkward greeting with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. And um, it's obviously a more than sore subject, especially with journalists, given uh, given their treatment uh, of the WASHPO journalists. But uh, talk us through this story anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So Edelman has partnered with Saudi Arabia to help better market the kingdom as a tourism and culture destination. And what they've done is they've created a a proposal, which is being dubbed the Search Beyond campaign, um, which would be a five year long campaign that essentially uses partnerships with celebrities and uh, encourages pursuing opportunities that can lead to major productions being filmed in Saudi Arabia, such as The Daily Show, things like that. Um, But it'd be primarily targeting the U.S. market, as well as France, Germany, the Middle East and the U.K., Um, But I've seen a lot of people talking about this one, as you mentioned, the controversy behind it, um, about where major companies, um, the debate on where major companies, if and where they should be drawing the line with these clients. So it's causing a lot of speculation. And uh, we've seen attempts recently from Saudi Arabia to kind of repair this public image. There's a lot of talk around the Live Golf Invitational Series, which is being backed by Saudi Arabia and the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund and uh, the purchase of Newcastle uh, United, a football club in England uh, last year. So spawned some really interesting conversations and topics out of this one. It has. And we should say this uh, story was unearthed by Politico. They got a a deck that uh, Edelman lodged with FARA, which is the foreign agent uh, registration, which you have to do when you're doing work with clients like this and it was it was in arabic actually and it had to be translated and we should say it was just a proposal deck so um whether any of this actually goes ahead is is still uh, tbd but edelman certainly works with saudi arabia it's worked on the neom uh, mega city development uh, in the past and continues to do so norval you've, you've covered the oil and gas industry and obviously will have some insight into these sort of issues. What's your take on it? Because it seems like, you know, they're, they're trying to move away from that reliance on oil and gas, um, but that, that, that's given them enough money to do to make massive moves. But it's, it's very controversial, isn't it? Especially when, uh, you know, as a journalist, we, we obviously remember our colleague who was, was murdered, basically, by the Saudi regime. Yeah. And I think the, the conceptual difference between the cultures, like from a media perspective, I think is just it's almost insurmountable. I don't really know how, if you were able, then you'd go, you'd go about it. I mean, so I used to cover oil and gas. So part of my job, I covered the markets and I had to call up Saudi Aramco probably about once a month to try and get oil prices out of them. And yeah, I would never get anything out of them. And then basically at Dow Jones, we had 
the point of our oil and gas department really was to follow Ali Al Naimi, who's the Saudi oil minister, um, as he was jet setting around the world, on the off chance he might say something that would then move the oil market. Um, once I was at a, a conference in Calgary, uh, no, it was in, it was in uh, Montreal, and it's, suddenly he turned up and he was there. And so I put an SOS into the deck and the desk, and I then had to shadow him throughout the hot two days on the off chance he might say something to me. Um, at which point, um, after me shadowing him for that long and might like saying, Mr. Naimi, um, what are you going to do with the OPEC meeting next week? Uh, his bodyguards grabbed me by the throat and put me up against the wall uh, yeah. and said, you will, you will not bother the minister anymore. And I said, um, how does he know who I am? And they said, we know who you are. And so, you know, I think there's, there's room to move from that to a, a better relationship, I would suggest. But, you know, I don't know how much they want to share. That's a very interesting media relations strategy. And when you consider what eventually happened to Jamal Khashoggi, it's slightly uh, more than concerning and frightening to your own personal safety. So, yeah, that's the that's the whole environment that Edelman is playing in here and other agencies who are working in, in Saudi Arabia and, and other countries over there. And I think it's particularly meaningful to U.S. Uh, citizens who of Obviously, people from New York still remember, and and other parts of the US remember the nine eleven attacks, and that most, you know, the majority of the terrorists actually hailed from Saudi Arabia. So that makes that brings it home as well, and it brings up this whole issue about where where do you draw the line between clients that you should work with, and uh, you know, people used to work on tobacco. That's pretty much a no no now, although not completely. Clean creatives, as the lobby group has been, and Greenpeace have been targeting agencies for working on on oil and gas clients just finally on this novel uh, having covered oil and gas how do you do you see the, those companies making genuine attempts now to um, migrate their their operations beyond fossil fuels i guess what's changed is the ukraine and, and russia's invasion which has almost changed people's attitudes to oil and gas but in general do you think the companies are making genuine attempts to move beyond fossil fuels yeah, well Sort of the trouble is, is that the cash cow is all, is going to be oil for some for some time for these for these guys, um, and therefore it's very very difficult for, to move on from that with anywhere near the pace that anybody expects. Um, I think even fifteen twenty years ago, when BP went to beyond petroleum, and everyone went really, um, but that was actually quite prescient. I think you know, and we all remember that campaign, but it was definitely the way forward. Um, I think that ultimately. The oil and gas companies, they have to try. Yeah, that they are trying. Um I think that they kind of still don't really get it because ultimately they have to go through so much regulation and so much kind of scrutiny that they would argue that they're trying to do everything right. You know, I mean the amount of regulations they would have to go through to actually drill an oil well um successfully and then environmentally clean it up these days is you know very, very intimidating. And they would say that, I don't know why I'm arguing for them, but um, hey, I'm having fun with it, so let's go. But, like, they, would say, but, uh, but they would say, look, we're doing everything that we're asked for. You're at, what you're actually asking us to do is completely change the world's energy diet. Um, and how can we actually do that without support? I think the only way you can really do it, really, is um, with a lot of government regulation help as well. Because, I mean, it's almost pointless arguing about what the energy com- company is doing 
in terms of why aren't they weaning us off oil and gas faster when you look at the yeah the almost lack of uh mpg that you get with american cars for example um and just the amount of energy that's wasted in some countries um and the government should be cracking down on yeah you need everybody to be working out at this not just the oil and gas companies yeah and i'm sure that the chevrons and uh you know shells and bps and exxons of this world will say well look if we just completely pull out of fossil fuels then there will be other actors that will take our place and they won't necessarily act in uh, as ethical a way as we say we are so it's there are many layers and like all stories they're not black and white and they're very complicated but i I do think in general, you, you make a good point about Beyond Petroleum. In, in some ways, that was ahead of its time, but that, that kind of um, went a little bit by the wayside. But yeah, very complicated stuff. And that's where agencies are playing and having to decide who they're going to work with and to what level and whether, you know, they, they would argue they're trying to make things better. And let's talk about the PR Week Awards, Ewan. Um, they're launching by the time this podcast comes out. They will have launched for entries. The Oscars of the PR industry It's the biggest um, and best awards program and really important stuff and gets more important year on year. Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, uh, the 2023 U.S. PR Week Awards will be opening for entries. It'll be live, I assume, by the time this podcast comes out. Um, and even more exciting news is that Corey DeBrava, uh, whom I had the pleasure of interviewing a couple of weeks ago for one of our feature pieces, is serving as chair of jury. So super exciting stuff there. Yeah, you did a nice job on that for our newsmaker. So great to have Corey um, judging and uh, looking after the jury duties this year. And um, yeah, so get the key dates um, make sure they're on your calendar. There will be early stage awards deadlines. There will be general deadlines. And then, of course, late deadlines. We know you like your late deadlines. But uh, make sure it's on your radar and that you're working on all the uh, all your best campaigns and teams. The, the first deadline is the end of August, 31st. The final, final deadline is October 12th. So I guess those are the two that uh, are going to be most relevant to people. Looking forward to um, just... It's, it, it really does provide the case studies that others can aspire to, and it really is the best representation of the improvement in PR and the, in, and the, the extra importance of it. So these are really important awards, and we're very proud to put them on. Let's finish with a people move. Ewan, Nancy Elder, who we know from various jobs, but most recently at Zone, she's moved to a new gig, an interesting one for New Yorkers. Yeah, she has indeed. The New York Mets have hired Nancy as their first chief communications officer, and she'll also be joining as a member of the franchise's senior leadership team. Uh, as you mentioned, she was most recently chief uh, comms officer at DAZN. Um, and I'm no baseball expert, but it seems like from her career, the team can rest easy with uh, Nancy at the helm. Yeah, well, the Mets are much beloved. Um, Frank Washkirk and Gideon Fiddlesite of our parish. By the way, Gideon is back at PR Week, everyone. He uh, he had a short hiatus away from us, but he missed us so much that he's back. So anyone worried who was missing Gideon, he's back. Do say hello to him, and we're very pleased to have him back. But uh yeah, listen, Norville, you're a sports coach with a, with a sport that involves hitting a ball with a stick. That's essentially what baseball is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I play cricket as well, actually. So, um, yeah, very, very, very simple. <laughs> I, guess, I guess my question with this one, really, is, um, I mean, isn't baseball becoming much less popular in the US? I mean, you might even say that it's beginning to, you know, die. That's, um, that's so, so shots fired, Norville. Shots fired by the, the two Brits and the sort of Irish. I, I would agree with you. <laughs> I'm a big NFL fan, and in terms of like the, I mean, you look at the um, like the audiences that the different sports are getting. Um, like 
I think there is no doubt that baseball is you know, just like really is not capturing the American imagination in the way that it once did. Um, I think you have the um, you know, the scandal two seasons ago where uh, Houston won with uh, by stealing teams' calls and things like that. Um, I think baseball does have um, a big PR problem that it that it needs to solve, uh, but it also needs to solve the relevancy problem. And I think that's yeah, you know, I think that's why this move specifically looks really interesting to me. Yeah, I think Nancy coming in, you know, the the old baseball communicators were of, of a certain type, weren't they? And Nancy's very much a new age sports uh, communicator and uh, will bring a fresh look to it. So I agree with you on that. The Mets is obviously incredibly well backed. It's an iconic team. It's a great night out. It's a great day out. Love going to the baseball. Um, I'm never going to be a Yankees fan because of their association with Manchester City. So, um, but, hey, nobody gives, nobody cares about that. But the Mets is, is great concessions. It's a great night out. But you, maybe you're right on the on the sporting front. But uh, at least it's a safe sport, isn't it? You know, the NFL problem is obviously with concussion and uh, and that whole part of it. But uh, yeah, we uh, wish Nancy well with her new gig over at the Mets. Listen, Norvo, it's been great to chat to you. Really enjoyed the conversation and uh, lots to catch up on. And um, looking forward to meeting you in person when you're over in the States. And um, good luck with Tractable. Sounds like things are going well. Yeah, thanks very much, Steve. Ewan, uh, great to talk to you guys. And hopefully we'll speak soon. Yeah, and thank you, Ewan. Your first podcast with me. Good to chat to you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Um, so yeah, don't forget the awards are open for entries. Go to prweekawards.com and uh, or go via the website or any of our other communications. You'll find it. PR Week Changemakers is out for. We're still looking for agencies to register their interest in that. You've only got until Friday this week to do that. This is not the main part of the application. I should emphasize that you you do need to register your interest though at the form, which you can again find on the website. PR Decoded is going to be a great event in Chicago in October, the 11th and 12th of October. We'll have the Purpose Awards on the 11th. Brilliant speakers line up. The Purpose Awards always um, representing some great work there and some really interesting business discussions. It's going to be a brilliant show, so make sure you've got that on your calendar. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.